0: Hello, welcome to this instalment of the Weekly Squeak. Now, I've been doing this uh, on and off, (laughs) weekly, very tenuous weekly, for a few weeks, read six months. I had uh, one episode with a couple of guests who weren't actually there with me, of course. They were in, uh, where were they? They were in Zagreb and they were in Barcelona, I think. But that worked quite well. Um... And I think some of the best podcasts that I like and I enjoy are ones where you have a couple of posts, you get some different opinions, you um, get a bit of conversation, you get a bit of discussion. Uh, as much as I like just talking myself, <laughs> I don't know. It was a bit. It, it was hard to fill the uh, the void sometimes. So I thought it was about time we tried the uh, podcast with a with a co-host and. Um, I actually had a very uh, suitable co-host who, um, well, I'll let, I'll let them introduce themselves first and then we'll explain how we uh, how we know each other and what we uh, do with each other. But so firstly, my co-host to my left, actually, literally to my left, I can poke them.
1: <laughs> Please don't.
0: So you've already heard her dulcet tones before she's had a chance to introduce herself. So who are you? Who the hell are you?
1: Hi, Chris. Hi, everyone that's listening. My name's Kate. And I am a fellow Berlin resident. Um, As you can probably guess by my accent, I'm Australian. And um, I'm, as as far as jobs go, as far as careers at the moment, I work as a freelance tech journalist, which means I spend a lot of time interviewing people in the sector, particularly CEOs and um, CTOs. And people doing all kinds of interesting things, whether they're startups or they're working in academia or they're working in um, out in the field in different um, different capacities.
0: So, how do we know each other?
1: Well, um, it's a funny story. That I mean,
0: not really, but (laughs)
1: Chris and I have been married for um, eight or nine years, I believe.
0: So yeah, I got my wife on the show.
1: Yes, and so I think we've (laughs) we've known each other maybe eleven years or something like that.
0: But I think we were actually, um, and this is going to be a bit of an experiment, we haven't really tried this before, we also still only have one microphone. We do. And I'm already looking at the uh, levels and mm. I can see that I'm extremely loud and Kate, mm. you're extremely quiet. So either, project, darling, or come a bit closer or I'll just try to talk quieter, maybe. Or somewhere in the middle.
1: Yeah, I don't know, I, when it, I'm almost reluctant to start talking loudly because then you get those kind of drama school tones that sound... I don't know, very artificial, so um, I'll probably keep it. I don't it know what you mean. I'll probably keep it at this volume and um, feel free to adjust. But just talk
0: to the microphone. I am. There, there it is. Okay, um, so we got inspired to maybe try this. We were in Warsaw in Poland last week, and we'll come to that in a minute. Um, but as part of that, one of the, or some of, not one of, some of the guests were a um, professional podcasting couple called the Gilmore Gang, Steve and Tina Gilmore. And they were a very interesting couple. They're a very nice couple being around the tech scene for quite a while. And they've also been doing this podcast together. That's right. And we kind of thought, and it's not actually, I mean, it's not the only podcast, not even the only tech podcast I've heard with couples. So, and seeing as I had a ready-made co-host in the same uh, 75 square meters as me, I thought, why not try So we thought we'll give this a go, see what happens. So basically, um, much like the accompanying blog, I may have a particular topic I'd like to discuss. Um, But also we'll talk about some of the things we've been writing about, some of the people we've been speaking to, where we've been the past week. So, where have we been in the past week, Kate?
1: We've actually spent some time in Warsaw, in Poland. Um, We travelled there by train, which is about... What is it? Five, six hours from Berlin. Yeah. Which is not too bad, really, for an Australian. It's not far at all for us. It's quite nice, quite a nice journey. Um, And we went to Warsaw for Bitspiration, which is a startup conference in Warsaw. Interestingly, I think most of the people involved were actually from um, another part of of Poland. They were from. um,
0: Krakow. Yeah, there was a lot of rivalry. I actually found out. Sorry, I'm eating raspberries. I do apologize. Um, I actually found out doing a walking tour after Kate had left that one of the main reasons between the rivalry, aside from the fact that big cities in the countries always like to rival each other, true, is that at some point in the past, um, the king of the time uh, moved the capital from Krakow to Warsaw, and they still haven't got over it. Um... And the main reason was, there were two reasons given, he was an alchemist Mm. um, and he was trying to invent some kind of explosive material and he blew up half of his castle and couldn't be bothered rebuilding it so he decided just to start a new one in Warsaw. But also the other reason was uh, he was also hoping to be, I can't remember if he was or was trying to be the king of Sweden at the same time Mm. and Warsaw was slightly closer to Sweden.
1: What, King of
0: Sweden by marriage or by... No, by conquering, I think oh, okay. is. Okay. Uh, And was King... Sebastian? Something like that. I don't know. No anyway, let, let, that comes later. Let's let's get back to the um, Bitspiration. Okay. So, um, this was your first exploration of kind of Eastern-ish European tech scene, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It was. And it was an interesting event. It was in... Um, not really an old, but it was still partially used, but the old bit of a bus garage, which meant that the registration desk was in a bus and all the yeah. buses looked like they were uh, hand-me-downs from Berlin. They did. Strangely. Um, and they had... Um, the back of a bus was a DJ booth. <laughs> um, it felt a bit like a prison at times. <laughs> yeah, but,
1: it, had uh, a, it had a funny layout. It sort of had like a very large open-plan space on the ground. Which obviously was presumably to drive the buses into. Then you had on the set on the first floor, if you like, a kind of um, suite of offices around the perimeter of the square.
0: I think using the word suite very uh, liberally. Right? Yes, <laughs> very
1: liberally. So it had. I don't know if you've seen prison shows where they have sort of a large central area. Then up a flight of stairs, there's like a um, a balcony, perhaps is the right term. And it's got lots of doors which lead to the cells. That's pretty much what it looked like. It was a little bit odd. And then, of course, being a tech conference, you had the very typical accoutrements that you'd expect. There was um, beanbags. There was a ping pong table. There was beach chairs. There was free soft drink. Um, there was also something that I thought was a little strange. Um, being someone that you know is is female in in the in the tech industry, there was a sponsor for the coffee which was very generous rebel coffee rebel coffee which which makes what you're about
0: to say even stranger
1: which was actually a startup based around uh, my understanding was it was basically so that you could order coffee before you went to the cafe in the morning
0: no it was a bit more than that it was actually more like pre-buying it
1: was it right yeah oh you that's right you could pay up front and and sort of pre-order for the month or whatever so you didn't have to worry about not having money on you i think that was it but um Yeah, I was a little bit confronted because um, as well as having their free coffee, which is great, they had a couple of young women, you know, very young, thin women with very high-heeled shoes on and very short skirts, lots of makeup, giving out flyers about their business. And I don't know. I mean, there's not a lot of places I've been to in in tech where that would fly. You
0: you still, I mean, this is a discussion in itself, you still do see booth babes at some tech events I've been to especially some of the larger corporate ones which is a bit irresponsible of them mm. with that particular those particular two women it was interesting because I don't know who told them to dress like that Yeah. because one of them especially after about an hour she took the heels off yeah. and was wearing sneakers the rest of the time yeah, I did and the them. other one kept wearing what i would refer to as stripper shoes like the entire time but maybe maybe she wanted to i don't know um, quite
1: possibly but um
0: but anyway the coffee was good it was like rocket fuel that stuff
1: yeah it was nice and strong which is always a treat when you're from germany cuz you don't always get oh come on the not the, true. the best the strongest coffee so yeah, no, no,
0: i think i think you're wrong there but anyway um
1: well the coffee was okay so
0: and they had a few international guests they uh, had the aforementioned uh, gilmore gang mm. um and they also had, uh, is it Dan Nolan?
1: Um, Dan Lyons. Dan is. Lyons.
0: Sorry, Dan Lyons, who I'd never heard of, but everyone else has spoken to seems to have. Maybe you'd like to explain who he was, is, forever shall be.
1: Yeah, um, Dan Lyons is, has a background in writing. Um, he's worked for a number of publications, um, including, uh, where has he worked lately? Newsweek, Newsweek. Um, the New Yorker, New York Times, um, a few different places around. He's also previous editor at ReadWrite, which is where I work now. Um, he was technology editor at Newsweek, and you may know him because he's actually um, one of the has been one of the screenwriters on the TV series from HBO called Silicon Valley. Um, I'm sure everyone has seen Silicon Valley. Very very funny t- t- television program. Sometimes painfully realistic um according to who you speak to and he's also quite well known um of late because he's written um one of his number of books but the most recent one is called disrupted and it's actually about his experiences working at hubspot in um in in states in boston in boston yeah and if if you do get a, a copy of disrupted i recommend people have a read it's very very funny
0: Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, he was talking as an older person working in startups, which um, is, yeah, I think that's going to become any, I mean, tech industry, startup industry, especially tends to be very focused around young people uh, and the sorts of people who have the time, the luxury, and shall we even controversially say the uh, luxury and the naivety? to work a lot or work the demands that everyone puts on them. Um, and sometimes, you know, when you get past like 30 something, which is not that old really, it's like being a sports person, you know, um, you're almost considered too old. and um, But at the same time, you know, lots of founders of some of the early kind of second wave of, of startups like Etsy and even Airbnb and things like that they're going to be 40 plus now. Um, So those companies will start to mature and so will their workforces. So I think it's actually something that's interesting to discuss. And he's not the first person to have, we knew a guy in Australia who also talked about like being a 40 year old with family in startup world. Um, But um, he's doing it from a much more humorous perspective. And there were some funny anecdotes there at uh, HubSpot of like the, the room that no one was really sure what it was for uh, <laughs> and, and things even, like that.
1: Yeah, even just your casual kind of ageism, like um, going into a, an office and people saying, so do you know what Facebook is? And this is someone who's had a tech journalism history for 20 plus years, you know. Do you know what Facebook is? Do you know what Twitter is? It's a little condescending. and It's I think like Friendster, isn't it? <laughs> Friendster, God. Um, 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 is that still going? No, <laughs> I don't believe it is. Um, but I, I do believe. I mean, we've seen in the last five, ten years, a lot of emphasis, particularly in the um, latter part of those years, on um, diversity within tech. And the two areas have been concentrated are um, cultural diversity, but also uh, women in terms of gender diversity. And I'm I'm thinking age diversity or um, ageism as a as an actual discriminatory issue will become more of a more of a, um, a more of a something. I don't know more of something that is perhaps
0: but you, you bring up an interesting point here because surely one of the positives perceived positives of the tech and startup world is that you're a countermeasure you're an active rebellion against the established um well okay let's talk more generally but the established middle-aged white male and okay the white male maybe isn't being so successful but the age is and maybe that industry doesn't want to be old. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that's half the point. I don't know. And we say this is two people who are getting close to that age. Yeah. So it's something that has actually been bothering me. I do sometimes go to tech places and I feel old. Um and I'm only thirty five, so Yeah, I mean yeah. I
1: think it's a it's an interesting point because it's not only that people have had successful careers that are aging but it's people are entering the workforce in the tech industry a lot a lot later in some instances. Hmm. Um,
0: Upskilling after an old industry has collapsed, I particularly, guess.
1: Particularly, um, as, as is my experience. I mean, I think the notion that people have one career is certainly not the case in tech. Long dead. Um, um. Far, far from um, the reality anymore. And I think that's going to lead to an ageing population within tech because people will be starting something new more than Mm. once in their career. And whether that's starting their own startup or it's having a role within either a startup, it's within the policy side of things, it's the media, it's the legal, it's, you know, whatever the um, consulting arena, the HR arena. So many ways that people are actually... Horrible
0: words you're using, consulting and HR.
1: Well, oh. Isn't that why do we're it. in the
0: startup world to avoid those terms?
1: Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I was. That you
0: mean the people manager?
1: Oh, yeah, the happiness and coach. And the ex-
0: external ideas generator. The external disruptor.
1: The happiness hero.
0: The external disruptor. External <laughs> That's a disruptor. consultant. <laughs>
1: that sounds like a transformer. <laughs> That's a consultant.
0: <laughs> Even better. It's a funny
1: one. I was actually reading something today about a startup in, in the States, and the States is often your example, and it was two people that. I don't know, you want to slap them if you met them. They basically wrote a fairly... I won't mention the company, but they wrote a fairly long diatribe about employing wow. some people and um, there was a contract involved and that they, as, as founders, they signed it without having really read it. And it, it basically gave the employees cut blanche to um, do very little work. Um, there was... They were effectively kind of trying to take over the company and... Everyone was just like, what? How could you employ people and not, not read a contract? It's just beyond you. But it shows that these less sexy kind of roles, like your HR and your legal, are imperative if you're growing a company.
0: Hmm. Okay, Let's, um, so we'll, we'll continue down the Bitspiration path yeah. and sort of use it as jump-off points. So the next jump-off point I found interesting, and I noticed this, we also noticed this, actually, so we were both at Slush in Helsinki last yeah. year, but I also noticed it at other events I've been to in um, the Nordics before Mm. and it was a little bit in Poland as well it was interesting because so they had um, three, so the Gilmore Gang and um, (laughs) (laughs) Tan I keep forgetting people's names Um, from America of course, and also a guy called Titus who is actually Polish but had been in the valley for a while
1: Titus Sikowsky. Yes, yeah, know. which
0: is an awesome name. Uh, he sounds like some kind of Bond... <laughs> I don't want to say villain, but Bond well, a bit character. <laughs> not really, just the name sounds like... Oh, well, actually, sounds like a Roman soldier, I think. But anyway...
1: Well, that's more of a compliment, I think.
0: Well, not really, but anyway. Um, and I found it interesting because a lot of the Americans, and this isn't the first time I've heard this, and I'm a strong believer in it myself... We're bringing up the fact that uh, America, and the Valley especially, are not um, everything. That Europe is beginning to be able to stand on its own two feet. That um, the Valley is a busy and very pressured place. It's a very expensive place. Apart from the access to funding and the kind of hanging out with a lot of people who agree with you, in some respects, it's not always the best place to, to be, to be a new startup. And yet there is always this desire to get there as soon as possible, sometimes too soon maybe. Um, and it was interesting because a lot of the American guests were saying, you know, don't worry about it. Be good at what you're good at. Uh, get bigger, a lot more locally first, etc., etc. And a lot of it made some sense. I mean, these are people who actually kind of know more what they're talking about. They come from that place themselves. And yet, a lot of the local speakers were all very much like, you've got to go to the valley, it's amazing, it's awesome, you've got to go here, you've got to be that." And even some of the speakers were saying things that, in my mind, were complete bullshit. There was a couple of speakers I saw saying that the Silicon Valley was altruistic.
1: Hmm. The notion... I, I
0: don't care that. I don't know where that comes from.
1: They were kind of peddling a notion. I know it was well-intended, but the notion was that, oh, you know, there's a great Polish community of 30,000-plus people, which there is, but these people will look after you, you know, go there. And people are supporting each other and helping each other. And while it is true in some respects, I think it's more about going there with your eyes open, but also having a plan. And I think Titus made some really good points about that. I went to a session he was um, presenting. And it was about if, you, if you're if you going to go to Silicon Valley or you're going to go to San Fran, wherever, you know, you're focusing, um, make sure that you're going with... A plan in mind you've got a list of who you're going to speak to you've got their contact details you've got a, um, some purpose of what you're actually trying to achieve in those conversations whether it's funding or it's you know contacts or whatever but also um, he was a bit talking about it in a more of a strategic way of actually saying things like well you know how are you going to make it so that you have meaningful interactions with those people. For example, can you help them with something that they need from you, rather than just take, take, take? And it was an interesting one because um, the impression I got of a lot of the audience there were they were for a startup community in some respects. They were a fairly reticent kind of audience, mm, very quiet, almost shy. I would say. I mean, to be fair, there are some, some people that they were quite young, and I'm not sure if they were students or they were actually running. Their own businesses. Um, I think there was a lot of people there that weren't in the startup scene, but were very interested in getting involved, seeing it perhaps as a way out of um, there, you know, a change of career. And I think one thing that was very much coming across, particularly from the Americans, was the notion that you know you need to put yourself out there, you need to have meaningful engagement, you need to be memorable, you need to be helpful, you need to be um, able to sell yourself, but also have a little bit of humility, um, and that you need to, you know, have a point of doing these things. And you know, one thing that I'm just cycling this back. One thing that was also coming across was also the notion that, well, you know, staying in staying in Poland or somewhere in, in Eastern Europe, wherever, and actually having your own business, successful business, where you are funded. Or you know you make a profit, you employ a number of people, small or large, and they're able to feed their families, and that can be considered a success as well.
0: I suppose there's this glamour in It's the same thing. I've even you know people will go and work for a big, well-known company, maybe at less for less um, pay and less privileges because of the prestige, and I can understand that. And we've both worked in charities before. Um, where often you take a pay cut to work on something yeah. that you actually think is more worthwhile and Definitely. leads to more um, where you you could have been earning more or something like that. It's not always the motivating factor. But yeah, it was, it was interesting and I think um, this is something I've seen time and time again. So I've been doing a series of interviews with founders in various countries kind of around the edges of Europe. I wouldn't actually call Poland on the edge of Europe but um, it's sort of getting close to it on its far eastern end i suppose and a lot of them are waiting for a success story to give them confidence Mm. and i started these interviews with um, estonia and estonia's had two very big success stories and a lot of middling success stories as well
1: can you give some examples
0: of those well skype is the classic example got bought by microsoft transfer wise yeah Now, Pipe Drive, Toggle. Mm. I mean, transfer-wise, if you look at the funding, I think there was about $3 of funding Mm. for the Baltics last year. 500000 of that was all to transfer-wise. So they are a big player. And I don't think they're even officially Estonian anymore. I think Mm. they're actually London-based now. But they still have a big office there. But that uh, success has given the Estonians a lot of confidence. Mm -hmm. And I've been to other um, smaller countries where they don't have that same level of confidence. And... A lot of it is just because they're waiting for a big success story. Come, uh, people you interview will give you a list of companies that have been successful, but none of them are up there with something like Skype or TransferWise. They're all companies that have been successful, but unless you live in the country, you've probably not heard of them. Um, and I think Poland's in the same boat. They're sort of waiting for a success story. And the problem with a lot of these countries on the sort of edges of Europe that are in good time zones um, are a little cheaper in terms of cost of hiring staff, um, but don't have this sort of, haven't had this big confidence boosting success yet. They end up, unfortunately, being a lot of uh, just outsourcing mm. for other countries, which, I mean, generally, most people there are usually reasonably happy to do that, but it does mean that you're kind of in a more just doing the work role as opposed to idea generation and stuff like that. Um, and I guess that's changing, I think, to a lot of the smaller countries, the idea of even being an entrepreneur, well, uh, not being an entrepreneur, because it's been, I think entrepreneur, we've got to be careful, sometimes people think of it like it's a new word. Of course mm. it's not. They've been entrepreneurs in the entire it's existence proven. of humanity. <laughs> but okay, startup is actually a potentially viable option now. Yeah. And Poland is in the European Union, so they have access to European funding and things, which often is a first point of call for smaller companies. Um, but yeah, I think they're waiting for that big success story. And the one thing I notice with a lot of these events is this real hunger, it's like this constant kind of drive to have to push to uh, London, to San Francisco, to maybe Germany as well, mm. if you want to ignore the kind of English speaking market and go more wider across Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it comes across a little strong and a little too much. But I suppose sometimes it's the only way you can do it as well. Um, It reminds me of some of the, going on a slight tangent, but some of the musicians you used to meet in Australia because Mm. to the only way to make a career as an artist in a country like that that is so isolated is to be really, really fucking good at what you do. They are really good at what they do and they work really hard and they have a drive that they have to have. And um, yeah, It doesn't guarantee success, but it's not going to happen without you having it,
1: I suppose. Although it actually, um, i actually... had a, a postscript, if you like, or, a, you know, a, a note in that I've actually spoken to 2 startups who were at the conference in the last week, um, which I'll be writing up about probably, you know, late on the weekend or early next week. They were um, Airly, who are a company using IoT and sensors as a way to monitor... Um, pollution in the air, and they were creating a product, well, they've already obviously got prototypes already, a product that is, um, uh, is kind of sitting a bit between um, B2B and B2C, I guess, in that they're working with Cisco at the moment to roll it out to companies, um, particularly government sort of sectors that are looking at pollution monitoring. And the other one I spoke to was a company called Binny. Um, a slightly amusing name, and <clears throat> excuse me, they were actually doing um, smart bins. The notion that a bin for your household, um, as opposed to you know a, a garbage, a garbage bin out in the um, in the backyard garden or what have you, and the the notion with these is that firstly it would be able to crush some of your waste, and it would be able to uh, to tell you via sensor of course and your mobile uh, when the bin was full and needed to be emptied. Um, I'm not entirely sure how many other particular uh, tricks it could do because I only had a fairly brief chat with them. But um, I'll be interviewing them probably Monday, Tuesday.
0: Maybe it can turn into External Disruptor.
1: Never know. I mean, there are other bin products that are a little bit more. External um, disruptor. More well, exciting, perhaps you know.
0: The, external compactor.
1: There are bins now in parts of Asia that, if you need to empty the garbage bin out in the um, the city, for example, in the in the tourist areas, the truck is alerted when the bin's full and we can come and pick it up and change really? it. Yeah,
0: that seems like a lot of toing and froing, a lot of work.
1: No, it's considered pretty efficient because otherwise they overflow and the stuff goes everywhere. Are and they the human price. drivers? Or? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It, no, they don't have a robot doing it yet. I think hmm. that's probably one for the future, but hmm. yeah, you know, I, I write a lot about IoT, the the notion of connected devices, and the you know the idea that they can make things more simpler for a lot of people.
0: So let's get back. Um, I must admit, I uh, I didn't I didn't come across any uh, startups or project ideas that really blew me away. Um, There was Brainly, who were fairly well known mm. in certain sectors, who do a sort of, I guess, had like a private social network and support network for high school students. Mm. But the nature of it meant that, of course, I have no experience of it, and it's quite hard for me to know what it does and what it looks like and how successful it is and things like that. But that was quite interesting, especially as I have an interest in. Um, Sort of technology and education and things like that. Um, we met a lot of very nice people. Um,
1: yeah, definitely. Very nice people.
0: Yeah, um, I'm trying to think if there was anything else that really.
1: <coughs> there was
0: uh, one company whose name escapes me right now, but I sort of recognise the name Van Gogh or something like that. Maybe? Van Gogh, that's right, yeah. Yeah, do the art. That's and true. you can use an uh, uh, argum, uh, argumented, augmented, augmented reality yeah. app to look at the artwork on the wall I'd actually like to give that a go that sounds like a really cool yeah. idea um, which yeah, that was just quite that was interesting because that's always been this notion that um, technology was going to somehow allow you to see what clothes look like on you and that's never really worked because the physical form has meant the clothes just looking how you look in a picture does not say very much but projecting a piece of artwork onto a wall or something that actually is kind of it's pretty viable um, because art of course is 3D but it's just a picture or something, you know. It's actually quite a cool idea. I'd be interested to try that out. Um, I found some of the talks were a bit too much. Hey, look at me! Here's what I do. Before they finally got to the actual point mm. of the talk, which I found a little annoying. Sometimes I would have liked a few of them more to talk a bit about less about themselves and actually get to what they were there to talk about. Um, but aside from that, it was good um
1: i think anyone else you
0: spoke to who really kind of
1: um not so much but i think one comment i'd like to make that i've not seen at conferences and i'm curious to know from people listening if this is becoming the norm um perhaps it is is that most of the sessions i went to there was no questions
0: so this this um it depends on the event so often it's either actually there were there was time for questions. I think with this particular some sessions, event, like they were just running late.
1: Right, okay, but okay.
0: actually the point with a lot of events is to encourage people to talk to each other afterwards. Uh, that's kind of the... Firstly, it prevents the people who make a long statement without a question. That's true. Which is always really annoying. Mm. But also to try and encourage people to network and talk. Okay. Um, and it sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But that, I think that's some of the intentions there. It's an interesting um, yeah.
1: idea. I mean, I, I guess it depends very much on the approachability of the speakers.
0: Mm.
1: And in, in some audiences, the confidence of the audience to, sp- to talk to speakers.
0: It does which... also mean, of course, in a conference like that where people are not speaking in their native language, but the audience member and the speaker are both Polish, for example, mm. they can go and ask questions in Polish That's as well. That's a good point. Yeah. Which is something we often forget about as native speakers. Yeah. We have a much higher level of confidence about talking in our language at these events when other people don't. Absolutely. Um, you know, if you were to ask the question at a German conference, I probably would guess you would not say anything. Um, you know, think oh, think of it that way.
1: I would. I've spoken at lots of German conferences.
0: But have you asked the question?
1: Yeah.
0: Really? Yeah. And you understood?
1: In English I understood. Well that's that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's what I, I mean. Um, I mean in yeah, German. I am not sure my German is it, exactly, quite yeah. good enough yet. So think about that.
0: Um We went to the speakers and press dinner. That was very nice. Very nice. Polish food, actually, once you kind of get beyond the uh, kind of tourist staples, is actually quite nice.
1: It was nice.
0: Um, And then the party was heaps of fun at, I'm still not entirely clear what it was, but some sort of Google... Campus. Campus thing.
1: I think it was like a, it was part sort of a, a training kind of space, mm. and it was also a, a bit of an incubator for startups.
0: Yeah, it wasn't entirely clear what it was, but it was heaps of fun. It was fun. Um, yeah, and it made us on the second day a little less uh, enthusiastic.
1: We were a little bit tired from the. Um, let's just say at the dinner there were a lot of toasts. With, a lot of um, vodka. With with vodka shots. Yeah. Very. Festive
0: show, so all in all, it was a good event. Um, interesting, always interesting to go to places and meet people. Um, I think you left a little early, so I'm gonna um come back a step. I'd just like to talk very, very briefly about Warsaw and Poland itself. This is a multifaceted podcast, um, and I've talked about history before.
1: I'd like to just add something okay. very, very quickly, um, which is kudos to the organizers. Yes, um, running an event is bloody hard work. As we know, having run quite a few events, including conferences and managing volunteers, getting, you know, maintaining volunteers, participation, etc., etc., et, cetera, et cetera. Um, Keeping on time, managing food, all those sorts of things, hard work at conferences. And they did a really good job. Everyone did a great job.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, um, I spent an extra day and a half in Warsaw afterwards, um, as I've now discovered as well. In German, it's Warschau, and there is Warschau Strasse here, which is quite infamous party street. Oh, yes. Now I realise what it's named after. It was kind of interesting. Um, we were staying in an Airbnb very close to the city. And we left the conference a little early on the second day to do a quick bit of uh, tourist tripping. We went to uh, a cafe that used to be, you know, what well, is still part of a monastery. Mm. Um, we went and saw the... Um, Palace of Culture that was a gift from
1: Russia?
0: Stalin or Lenin. I yeah. can't quite remember. I'm not sure. There's also a smaller one in Riga, but this one is crazy. It's really, really weird. Uh, I then discovered like a year a year later, the next day, that there was a big uh, capitalist shopping centre right behind it, which mm. I find kind of amusing. Um, we wandered around a little bit, we went and found some food, etc. etc. Then on the next day, I did a walking tour, which um, was interesting in lots of ways. Um, Firstly, the old town, and then consequently a lot of the other bits of the town in Warsaw. Uh, It's listed as the oldest new town, no, sorry, the newest old town in the world. This is largely, so the actual, it's been a city, I think, since about the 1300s. But um, this is because during the Second World War, lots of Warsaw got completely levelled, mostly due to the uh, Warsaw Uprising, which was an attempt by um, resistance groups to have a coordinated um, resistance to the Nazi occupation, Um, and it wasn't altogether very successful, and the Nazis really retaliated against them, levelling a lot of the city, a lot, like About 70%, an insane amount. I think, I can't remember the exact numbers, but something like 100,000 people died in that week alone. Mm. Um, And that said, this included, I think, one of the first Jewish ghettos in Warsaw, um, where after the Second World War, there was only 5% of the Jewish population of Warsaw left, Mm. which is insane, um, and, that. I think I think history shows that Poland probably got more than its fair share mm. of brunt of the Nazi um, regime and force um, and Warsaw especially. Um, so a lot of it got rebuilt. Mm. It was really interesting because uh, especially some of the old city. It went straight into Soviet um, control, of course, and because it represented culture and history and religion and things like that, that were very anti-communist ideals, um, they didn't really do very much to help rebuild the city, the uh, communist powers. So a lot of it was actually funded and rebuilt by the people, which is really interesting. Um and because of that, it's meant that uh, certain areas of the old city are actually UNESCO heritage sites, even though they're less than 50 years old. Um, but also, interestingly, like on the facade, lots of the places are remodelled in a traditional style. And mm-hmm. strangely, a lots of the inspiration for uh, rebuilding was from um, paintings by an Italian painter from the Renaissance.
1: Wow. So they end
0: up having a rather particular character of course
1: quirky but
0: lots of the buildings on the inside are built like the communist ideal
1: mm-hmm. so
0: you get these strange sort of renaissance era facades to a building mm. and then like communist style bathrooms this
1: is weird what's a communist bathroom
0: so it's usually quite small utilitarian you know as much as you oh, need okay. as so much spaces f- functional you Yeah, like the sorts of places um, in leipzig Square. and in berlin <laughs> and things like that um so that was really interesting. Uh, and it also turned out that the Airbnb we'd been staying in, so which was very much a communist-era building, mm. it was sort of utilitarian block, but then on one side were these massive staircase and pillars and archway, mm. which was very, very strange. And then I discovered on the walking tour that that was actually the old Jewish ghetto. Um, and so much of it got destroyed. And because... There was hardly anybody left to miss it, Mm. if you forgive that rather blunt way of putting it. It didn't really get rebuilt. And also, the only people who remained, hardly anybody stayed. Lots of them went to Israel. Yeah, exactly. And um, they didn't really even want to remember it, of course. So it didn't get rebuilt at all and became this kind of communist era estate. But we, we were staying in there. And that was, once I discovered that, it made... It made the whole area have a different feeling to mm. me. This kind of feeling of like the tens of thousands of people who died there. It yeah, was, sinister. It was well, not, not necessarily sinister, but just um, it, it it played on your mind, that's for yeah. sure. So, yeah, it was interesting. Um, I read somewhere that at some point in the past, Warsaw was named the second most boring city in Europe to Brussels. Wow. And it wasn't necessarily the most lively city in the world, but we had fun and it was very pleasant and very nice. And I guess the rebuilding work had meant that a lot of places were quite clean. Yeah,
1: definitely.
0: Inside the whole kind of tourist ring, it's very set up for tourists. Yeah. It doesn't take very long to get out of that kind of ring. And I found that as soon as I walked sort of 10 minutes in the other directions, I was in places where you had to speak Polish. Mm. Um, I didn't really know what was going on. Um... And it was quite different. And mm. we were told by locals there that as soon as you get maybe half an hour out, it turns into a very different sort of city. Mm. Um, and Poland is still, relatively speaking, poor. So that's not to be... It's to be expected. Yeah. But it was interesting. We met quite a few people who live there and things like that. Definitely. Um, and I think we will have to go back and visit Krakow at some point.
1: Yeah, I would definitely be keen to spend some more time in Poland. I think... Um, it's always nice for me because being Australian, historically, travel has been something that's been incredibly prohibitive due to she cost. And when, you, when you're really living in Europe and you can travel to places in Europe where your euros convert really well, um, mm. it's obviously even cheaper. So it, um, it really gives you that incentive to holiday within Europe. And there's a lot of places that we've still not seen or I've not seen anyway. Mm. Chris has seen a lot more than I and definitely keen to spend some time, particularly over the summer, exploring some of the lakes and things like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, let's take a quick break from big topics to talk about what else have we been writing about, who else have we been speaking to the past two weeks. Well, so I let's just take a quick break from the big topics to maybe discuss uh, other people we've been speaking to, other things we've been working on. So I'll kick off first, whilst Kate does some hasty research to remember who she's actually spoken to. Yeah. Too much vodka. Um, really? I have had a couple of ongoing things. I've been interviewing some people in Albania and Kosovo for another article, which is super interesting. Uh, I've been working on some um, swift education lessons for a coding school in New York, and that's been really interesting because they want everything very explicit. And I always love that... Um, t- opportunity and need to write everything from bare basics and assume nothing. It really makes you think mm. about concepts and assumptions and things like that. So I find that interesting. Uh, I've been gearing up a lot of my time, so I'll have a lot to talk about in the next couple of weeks um, uh, for WWDC next week. Uh, Apple's developer conference, and it's also DroidCon here, so an Android conference. In the run-up to WWDC... Um, Phil Schiller did an interview with The Verge, which I wrote about on SitePoint. They've changed their app store model a little bit, expanding subscriptions to everybody and anybody, which could be interesting. Instead of paying for apps, it could be that you pay yearly or monthly for apps, which could lead to some interesting changes and interesting ways that people treat apps and developers of apps uh, as you know people who actually need to support what users ask for but also introducing um, ads in search results on the App Store which is a little less uh, skeptically speaking feels more of just a revenue stream for Apple more than something useful for developers but anyway that's, they're both coming on the 13th of June um, apart from that um, I'm sure I've been writing other things but I can't quite remember right now have a look on um, my website, com, or look on the blog post that accompanies this for a more comprehensive list of what I've been working on. Kate, what have you been writing about?
1: Yeah, I've had a quite a few interviews over the last couple of weeks. Um, just related to what Chris was saying about changing um, into a subscriber model for apps and app extensions, etc., it's been something interesting because I've actually been talking to Digital River, who are basically forecasters of commerce. And they work in the space of... Um, originally, they started doing sort of game subscriptions and things like that, and now they've moved into things like your digital downloads to more intuitive types of um, transactions. Some examples would be things like um, your printer is able to identify when you're running low on ink and thus order you link, which will arrive in your in your mail um, to your home. Um, things like um, really, I guess it's it's about monetizing services, and this is an interesting space in IoT at the moment. When we think about services that have failed or products that have failed, I guess um, one example might be Revolve, that um, where customers, you know, were all up in arms a few months ago because they no longer were able to provide the service. It's really about the fact that it wasn't monetized, and it's really the notion that. Once you buy a product as a, um, a consumer, there are other things to keep you engaged that you pay for, other transactions to have a relationship. And this indeed may change how we see commerce. For example, it may well be that that printer, instead of buying a printer, you hire a printer and then you pay for, per print or, or per cartridge. Some of those things are, are probably going to change over the next space which is, you know, something to really think about when we think about commerce. I guess other things. I've been talking to um, people in Jaipur, um, in India, both at um, at Cisco and also at the, um, the government offices there, regarding some of their work there towards making Jaipur a smart city, where they're looking at things like um, putting in smart lighting that also has um, cameras for emergencies and also is able to to do do a level of monitoring for things like um you know a mysterious package in the subway or things like that that's been quite interesting and um India in particular has been quite quite progressive in the smart cities area and i think the the important thing to stress with this is that the um members of public have, or the citizens if you like have been very heavily consulted there's been a lot of ways to consult them from competitions to facebook pages um, and they've also looked at it quite holistically, not just, oh, we want to have, you know, traffic lights that do things, but they're also looking at things like affordable housing and, and transport facilities and public Wi Fi, just even your basic stuff. Um, besides that, Intel and Exos are doing some work together, making wearables a bit more meaning, particularly the data. And I also spoke to Arable, which is quite an interesting company in the States, and they're basically. Doing um, crop forecasting using sensors to um, assist farmers and people in agriculture to be able to you know predict their their growth in crops and and as a means of being able to both market effectively but also um, predict things like weather and um, natural disasters and a lot of that work that they're kind of focusing on is is beyond Europe and your America to parts of the world where these things aren't mapped. They're not they're not the data is not being collected in parts of Africa and Asia particularly because they don't have the um the technology 24-7. So some of that's been really interesting. Um lastly, talking to Cargo Chain. We came across Cargo Chain a few weeks ago at a competition, a blockchain competition here in Berlin, and they came second in the competition. And basically they're using the blockchain as a conduit for transactions in shipping. Because the issue there in international freight is that everything's on paper. There's triplicates of paperwork. If it gets lost, there's lots of issues, etc. But um, really, just using the blockchain as a means to um, reduce, firstly, the paperwork; secondly, be more efficient; thirdly, be more secure um, in keeping keeping records and and transactions. And I think this is going to become more of a way of, of of using the blockchain and this particular model they were using was quite um, intent on really solving a lot of the criticisms of the blockchain, namely that it's slow, that it's expensive to use, some of those sorts of things. The Bitcoin blockchain. That's know. right. Yeah. yeah. So using IOTA as a distributed ledger, as opposed to just using um, some of the other other tools instead. You
0: just reminded me that something else I've been working on is an article on Eris, which is roll your own blockchain. Oh, yeah. Uh, I must admit, it's fairly hard to get started with, so it's taken me a while. But, uh... I'm
1: not entirely sure what that means, but I'm sure it's intriguing.
0: Well, we'll find out soon.
1: Roll well, your own blockchain.
0: Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, uh, I've got one other topic I'd like to discuss before we wrap up. Um, it's been talked about so much, and I'm almost over it, but I feel like I should get my opinion out there before it's too late. Sure. Um, and that is not tech related in the slightest. Well, sort of indirectly, maybe. And that's the whole issue of Brexit. Oh yes. Now I am a British citizen. I've not lived there for ten years, but I'm still allowed to vote. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I sort of very mixed feelings about the whole thing. I think a lot of it for me is the feeling of. There's a couple of things. Is the feeling of having a status taken away from having the potential to having a status taken away from you that you've got used to which is not something I ever thought I would have to face in my life and it's kind of very selfish and privileged of me to say that but that's not something I ever thought would happen Um, it's the feeling of being a representative of a country that doesn't represent you uh, that's nothing new um, I've got lots of feelings on this whole topic of the kind of digital nomad versus the nation state mm. which I've covered a little bit in the past and I wouldn't mind having an entire episode to talk about this absolutely but this kind of feeling that in these days it's it's easier than ever to live somewhere anywhere and work anywhere mm. and yet we're going through a time when nation states are starting to really lock down again and there's this kind of two very polar opposite movements happening yeah um There's a little feeling of that, you know, uh, being representative of a nation and people will always think of a nation when they first meet you, even if it's nothing to do with you. So there's a little bit of that. And I suppose mostly it's just that I don't even know if we want to stay in Europe, but it would be nice to be able to make the decision when I'm ready to make the decision, not be forced to make a decision, maybe. And basically just the fear of the unknown um, if they vote out who knows what will happen. And polls at the moment are in favour of leave, but I don't really trust British polling anymore, to be perfectly honest with you. Um So we shall see. I mean, yeah, there's a whole bunch of thoughts here, but a lot of it is around that feeling of, this increased feeling of nationalism and isolationism, and I'm a citizen of Britain and Australia that are both, islands Mm. so of course they're going to have this these feelings more in abundance but it's frustrating i think it's also that feeling of um i was saying this to kate this morning of it always seems to be that there's certain issues that are very strongly this is generalizing but are very strongly identified with older people Mm. and by older people i suppose we mean baby boomers which It's actually, you know, baby boomers are getting on a bit, but Mm. let's say 55 plus for sake of argument. And then the opinions that are usually the opposite, usually the opposite of those of the younger people. And sometimes it just feels like when will the opinions of younger people actually be, be the ones that get played out as opposed to the older people? Like I can only think of British examples, but you know, the Scottish referendum was largely shown to be supported by younger people and it didn't happen. And if Brexit happens, then it's likelihood that it was the majority opinion of older people again, and like when will it be that the thirty somethings are the one who actually have the strong opinions that change a country? It's sort of I don't know it's, it's a, I think a lot of it for me has the actual kind of end outcome it worries me slightly because I don't really know what it's going to be. But it's actually more those feelings of just being in a society that it still feels so outdated and old-fashioned. Sometimes it doesn't represent doesn't represent me, and I suppose we have to be especially aware that we mix with a lot of people who are very upwardly mobile and have the ability to be able to travel and things like that. And it's hard sometimes to remember that that's not the majority. That's true. But we shall see. I don't know. England's always had a love hate relationship with Europe and these misconceptions that blocking borders to Europeans will solve migration problems when actually the vast majority of migrants in the UK are not even from the European Union. Mm, That's true. Um, And we've been here before so many times with these sorts of discussions, and it's just frustrating that. We go round and round having these same conversations about fear of the outsider and et cetera, et cetera. And I I suppose it's frustrating for me because it's a country I'm a citizen of having these discussions. But these points of view and opinions are not unique to the UK. Not in the slightest, unfortunately. And we would just be to Poland. Poland's also going quite conservative mm. right now. And yeah, I don't know. I just sort of wanted to get my opinions out and now I'm almost trying to avoid any news coverage of it and just waiting mm. for the 23rd. Well, it's probably the next time we get an episode out, something will have happened and we can Indeed. talk about the outcomes.
1: Yeah.
0: But, um, yeah, I don't know if you have any particular uh, feelings on it, Kate. I mean, Yeah,
1: I mean, I have a very different perspective, obviously. I'm not English. I'm Australian. Um, and I guess my feeling, the thing that frustrates me most about it, is there's been very little in the media particularly the British media, or the UK media, if you like, about the reality of British expats living in Europe and what will be the consequences there, if any. I mean, we're talking about over 2 million people, most in France and Spain. Um, I read an article in The Guardian last week where it was pretty much an enclave of old English aged pensioners living in this place where none of them would speak Spanish. They basically had English food there, they had English newspapers they supported Brexit because they didn't want all these Polish people in Australia, in 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 England. Yet they were guests; they couldn't see any irony that as guests in someone else's country, that they you know should perhaps be a bit more welcoming of others. It was quite ridiculous. Hmm. And and this is going to be the reality. I mean, from all intents and purposes of what people are saying in Germany, at least, it's going to take several years for anything to happen. As far as people know, um,
0: and what a waste of time and money all that. You're talking
1: to be. about. To, can you imagine England having 2 million people come back, many of whom are, are old and therefore will be putting pressure on the NHS system? It's almost laughable.
0: I mean, on the flip side of that, if that is the case and that is the what the outcome, there will also be a lot of people who live in the UK going home. Well, it's true. And I would actually, I mean just to come to that point and I don't want this to sound like I'm being conservative or right wing about it, but I would say that the number of non, the number of EU residents living in the UK probably is bigger than the number of UK people living in the EU. So, but it's just the mess of it all. Just the confusion and the mess and the total waste of everybody's time. (laughs) But it's
1: even the same in Australia. I mean, we have quite an anti-immigration government as that will, oh, yeah, as we will come to no surprises but government's
0: what? hold it up as this system that's worked yeah. this is the crazy thing yeah,
1: most the statistically the biggest group of illegal immigrants in Australia is English people who've outstayed yeah. travel visas
0: i don't actually know if you've picked up on this but um in the uk at the moment the australian immigration system is being held up as a shiny beacon on two counts a they have successfully stopped the boats which is mm. look that up and you will find all sorts of references to what that exactly means and the kind of crap behind it all. But anyway, that's that. And number two, the point system that Australia has for Mm. uh, rating whether migrants can stay. And the interesting thing I've heard about that is some people have said this kind of looking to the Australian point system as a way of um, replacing the sort of European Union just come and do what you like sort of policy. Is that some predict that it would actually lead to more migrants? And if you have this policy, it, it's the same problem. It's like so: if you let yourself into the European Union and say, "Well, we we don't want to have you, but we do want to have you," it's like, well, you you can't have your cake and eat That's it. That's right. And it'd be the same with the point system. It's like well, just if someone gets the sufficient points; you've got to let them in. Mm. It doesn't give you any more or less control over. Who's going to come? You know, I think I sometimes feel like Britain especially always wants to be in Europe when it's convenient, be yeah. out of Europe when it's convenient, and right. a lot of other things as well. The UK and America both have this attitude of sort of, you know, well, we'll be with you when it's convenient, we'll be with you when it's convenient, mm. we won't be there when it's not convenient, and For et etc. et mm-hmm. And that sort of annoys me sometimes.
1: Yeah, that's a fair comment.
0: So yeah, we'll come back to that one. Uh, any other particular topics you'd like to bring up, Kate? Anything that's been on your mind? No? Well, we've been speaking for nearly an hour. Yeah,
1: I think I'm starting to lose my voice. This is
0: the first time we've tried this experiment. I'm pretty sure the sound was terrible. Yeah. Because we only have one microphone, um, and I can see the uh, waveform, and it's quite low, and I think it's oh, probably dear. quite echoey. But we'll just keep... and we, I'm probably not going to do very much editing because of that, because it'll be hard to separate the soundtracks and... Kate not being used to speaking on microphone kept moving a lot, which made a lot of noise. So apologise for that. Sorry. I guess I, I guess I should put this at the beginning. There's not much point in apologising for something you've already sat through. But um, it's like that thing that's always annoyed me when people fart or belch and they say, excuse me. It's like, well, it's a bit too late now. But anyway, that's a whole other discussion. Mm. Um, but I think if this works out, we'll probably do this a couple of other times. And then sure. if it works out, maybe we'll invest in another microphone. So, so, <laughs> so bear with us. A lot happening in the next couple of weeks that we'll talk about on yes. the uh, next I- increasingly inaccurately named Weekly Squeak. Uh, I've been Chris, Chris Ward, Christian Uh and this has been...
1: I've been Kate, as you can guess. Kate what?
0: You've only got one name?
1: <laughs> Kate. I am Kate. I've been Kate Lawrence. Thank you for having me, Chris, on your program. Well, maybe
0: it'll become our program. You never know. And I will make sure that your social media details and blog details are all in the accompanying blog post. And uh, yeah, we will maybe speak to you next time. Or maybe I will. Or maybe Kate will go renegade and do it all on her own. Who knows? Someone will speak to you soon. Take care and have a good few weeks until we speak to you next time. Thanks Talk soon.
1: Bye-bye.